Chapter 8 Golden Reflections It is one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. Telemann of Arcadia, mercenary of the 5th century BC. This chapter starts with a Zen proverb, to follow the path, look to the master, follow the master, walk with the master, see through the master, become the master. The Olympic Games are the biggest and most watched sporting event in the world. The Olympic medal structure, gold, silver, and bronze, provides the athlete, the press, and those that watch this event with a tangible record of great personal and team success for each top participant in the summer and winter games. In the following pages, we will see inside the minds of athletes who turned obstacles into stepping stones and won one or more Olympic gold medals to reach the pinnacle of their sport. Gold medals aren't really made of gold. They're made of sweat, determination, and a hard-to-find alloy called guts, said Dan Gable, one of the most renowned wrestlers, and wrestling coaches, ever. Gable won a gold medal at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. Not a single point was scored against him in six marches. As the University of Iowa's wrestling coach, Gable compiled a record of 355-215, and his team won 15 NCAA championships. Keep in mind that winning an inner gold medal is your ultimate victory. A true champion is someone who has overcome great odds to reach the pinnacle of his or her potential, regardless of the externally measured result. Each mental master provides an exclusive glimpse into a personal journey into the champion's mindset. They all won on a world stage, some by bouncing back from serious injuries, while others were triumphant against all odds in their quest for gold. Everyone can learn a great deal from the lessons these champions share, lessons forged in the Olympic crucible. So learn the champion's mindset and take the gold medal advice from some of the world's greatest athletes, including Duncan Armstrong, an Australian swimmer who won gold at the 1988 Seoul Olympics. John Montgomery, a Canadian skeleton racer who won gold at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Gabriel Cipollone, an East German rower who won gold at the 1976 Montreal Olympics and the 1980 Moscow Olympics. Adam Creek, a Canadian rower who won gold at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Anahi, an American martial artist in Taekwondo who won gold at the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Nick Hysong, an American pole vaulter who won gold at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Phil Mahare, an American alpine skier who won gold at the 1984 Sarajevo Olympics. Natalie Cook, an Australian beach volleyball player who won gold at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Glenroy Gilbert, a Canadian sprinter who won gold at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Australian, Duncan Armstrong, Olympic gold medalist in swimming career highlights. 1988 Seoul Olympics gold medalist, 200 meter freestyle. 1988 Seoul Olympics silver medalist, 400 meter freestyle. 1986 Edinburgh Commonwealth Games gold medalist. 200 meter freestyle 1986 Edinburgh Commonwealth Games gold medalist 400 meter freestyle 1989 NCAA All-American in the 400 meter and 800 meter freestyle for the University of Florida two-time Olympian 1988-1992 The Olympic Games have inspired men and women throughout history Many have loved the adventure of traveling to a foreign land to compete in the games and the long-lasting memories. 
others have reveled in the team atmosphere following their selection and then in living in the Olympic Village once the Games began. If you're a student of the Games history, you'd be delighted by the many ways that the athletes have experienced them. I love stories, both hearing and telling them. The Olympics are steeped in stories of courage, endurance, opportunism, and the unexpected. Herein are the stories that fueled my desire to be an Olympian from a very early age. When I was just six years old, I watched 16-year-old Queenslander Steve Holland win a bronze medal in the 1976 Montreal Games in the men's 1,500-meter freestyle. My entire school crammed into the library to watch him have a go at winning a gold medal. I can still remember the excitement and anticipation of watching this wonderkind of a world champion represent us in our biggest gold medal chance of those games. But that day Steve was outfoxed by two better swimmers, yet he still won a bronze medal. My experience in that school library inspired me to pursue swimming as the way to go to the Olympics. That's what makes the Olympics so hard to win. The athletes devote all those years of passion and dreaming to take part. When you get to the Olympics and represent your country, you're not just facing athletes who have prepared for the past 12 months, 2 years, 4 years, or even 10 years. You're facing highly motivated, very talented, uncompromising, and deadly serious people who have dreamed and prepared for this particular event their whole lives. You can forget what the program says at the Games, because when the starter's gun goes off, anything can happen. This is why the games are such a sport lover's paradise. The script is being written before your very eyes and you don't know what's going to happen next. My personal beliefs about the games prepared me in 1988 to be ready to win the 200 freestyle in Seoul. At that time, I wasn't interested in the culture of South Korea or who was on my team or what the Olympic Village was like or the number of freebies from the sponsors. At 20, after five years of grueling training with my coach Laurie Lawrence, I noticed all of those things, but none of them counted for anything. My unbelievable focus on what it was going to take to win was the edge I had over my opposition. We arrived in Seoul ten days before my race and I barely left my room, eat, train, sleep, and try not to go crazy in anticipation of the four-year clock counting down to only a few moments in the pool. You see. Athletes have just four years to be as ready as they can be before the gun goes off for their events at the Games. You can't arrive at the Games with excuses because excuses don't count when the four-year clock stops, the gun goes off, and you have 1 minute 47 seconds to prove you are the best 200 freestyler in history. If you have an excuse in mind in this scenario, then you lose, plain and simple. You can train the house down for years and be in your best shape and then a virus or a cold can take the edge off of you just before the games. You arrive at the starting line or block less than your best and lacking confidence, and then your opposition tears you apart. Four years of your life as an athlete goes down the drain. It sounds horrible, but it happens at every games to many gold medal hopefuls. You have four years like every other Olympian, and if you don't make the most of it, you can't win. So, once I arrived at the village, I didn't go anywhere outside the village and seldom left my room for 10 days. In 1988, I was ready, mentally tough, and confident, and only a few people knew my training times were off the chart and put me in contention for a gold medal. I had done everything I could to arrive at this race opportunity, 
and I just had to execute on that day against the fastest men in the history of the 200 freestyle. Easy, right? Everything that happened over the two days of racing for gold in the 200 freestyle felt like it was meant to happen. Looking back on it 25 years later I'm still surprised it was so smooth. The way I competed in swimming was all about confidence through preparation. The harder I worked in training, the better I swam, although I'm sure I overtrained during a large part of my swimming career. But for those sole games, my training in the years leading up to 1988 was just incredible, so my confidence came with the knowledge that I'd out-trained everyone in that race. I knew the seven other blokes in that final didn't do the training I'd handled. So when the gun went off I just had to show everyone what I was feeling inside. With this confidence, I was able to swim the first 100 meters faster than ever, knowing I had the legs to get back in the second half of the race in great form. I did exactly this and the opposition couldn't handle my second 100 meters. I went on to break the world record and win gold. I loved all the old stories of gold medal winners at the games, but the stories that truly inspired me were about people from humble backgrounds who went animal in their training for years. Then with great courage and determination, they overcame all their opposition to claim a surprising victory. I dreamed of becoming an Olympic gold medalist like Emil Zotopuk, Vladimir Salnikov, Lasse Wirain, and Herb Elliott, tough men who didn't compromise their training for anything and attained the ultimate prize. Canadian John Montgomery, Olympic gold medalist in skeleton career highlights 2010 Vancouver Olympics gold medalist 2008 Altenbeck World Championships silver medalist 2008 Altenbeck World Championships silver medalist Mixed Team 2011 Koenigsee World Championships Bronze Medalist Mixed Team Sports are a lot of things to a lot of people. They are a way out for some, a way in for others, a means to a better life for a few, and a means to an end for many. I am one of the many in the latter group, and I never would have had the courage or the confidence to discover my sport, my means to an end and now my passion had I not believed in myself enough to try new things and live life outside my comfort zone. Growing up in rural Manitoba, Canada, I had the great fortune to be born around the same time, in the same small town, as 16 other boys who would grow up to become amazing athletes. My friends and I grew up playing together at recess, road hockey after school, ice hockey all winter, and baseball all summer. With some of the best coaching in the province, no tryouts, and no pickups from other towns, my team from a community of 1,600 amassed a total of eight provincial championships in hockey, a Western Canadian bronze, and two provincial championships in baseball. We were always the smallest team, but we played like we were twice our size, and we never once stepped on the ice or the field without believing that we would win. I think the single greatest advantage we carried with us was our quiet confidence. Teams that would normally intimidate others into submission were flabbergasted and completely taken aback by the way we never backed down and continued to press until the last second counted off on the scoreboard or the final out was recorded. This never-say-die attitude and belief that we would prevail in the face of great odds proved to be the deciding factor in countless competitions in which we were outmatched in nearly every aspect except one, our self-efficacy. Simply put, it was the belief that we would achieve that which we sought. What I learned growing up shaped my life in adulthood. After moving to Calgary, 
Alberta, upon finishing my university studies, I was desperately seeking something that I could call my own and something that I could sink my teeth into. Hockey had been that something growing up, but since graduating from high school, I had not played competitively and craved the sense of camaraderie and self-satisfaction I got when I left everything I had on the ice. Academics filled that void to a point while I was in school, but writing tests are not the same as testing my mettle against others in athletics. It was that feeling, that physical challenge, and my lifelong dream to wear the maple leaf on my chest while representing my country at something, at anything, that inspired me to try new sports, primarily those offered only in cities with an Olympic legacy, in a search of my means to an end. Speed skating was the first new sport I tried after arriving in Calgary in the fall of 2001. Having spent nearly my entire life on skates, I thought making the transition to speed skating would be a no-brainer. To say I was mistaken would be an understatement. The extra-thin, extra-long skate blade with no ankle support on the boot is to a hockey skate what a wooden clog is to a jimmy chew, my wife said that's a fancy lady's shoe. I really enjoyed learning to speed skate and did manage to get my mind wrapped around the difference between a hockey stride and a speed skater's stride, but I wanted to try some other sports before I settled on the one I would dedicate my efforts to mastering. Becoming a national team athlete was still my goal, and I needed to make sure I worked not only hard but also smart. I had considered trying luge, another sport that only cities that have hosted Winter Olympic Games can offer to their residents, but after seeing a skeleton race for the first time in March 2002 on a random visit to the Canada Olympic Park in Calgary with my parents, I knew immediately that I had just seen something that I needed to try. One month after the skeleton was reintroduced as a full medal Olympic sport, after a 54-year absence, I was on my first run down the sub-zero chute head first, on a sled that I later described to my friends as a cafeteria tray with rails, sliding at more than 45 miles per hour. Eight short years later, I was sliding down the mountainside in Whistler, British Columbia, during the 2010 Olympics, going nearly twice as fast while realizing my ultimate dream, wearing the maple leaf on my chest and an Olympic gold medal around my neck. After that first run, I had no idea what had happened, but I knew without any doubt that I had found my new something. I didn't have any idea what I would accomplish in this sport that only a week earlier I didn't even know existed, but I knew that I was going to give everything I had to find out. I believed that the only way I could find out was going to be through hard work, sacrifice, and good old blood, sweat, and tears. I really believed that this was going to be my path for success not a path for winning races necessarily, as I did not have control over how good I would be compared to other skeleton athletes, but I knew I could become the best slider that I could be with that winning formula. That's all I wanted to find out. How good can I be? How can I be the best me possible? What that leads to is not up to us. That's out of our control. What we can control is our attitude and our belief that we can achieve our personal best. Sometimes our personal best is better than everyone else's. The difference between those who realize their dreams and their own potential and those who don't starts with the belief that they can actually achieve that which they seek. East German Gabriele Cipolloni, Olympic gold medalist in rowing career highlights, 1980 Moscow Olympics gold medalist, 
women's 8, 1976 Montreal Olympics gold medalist, women's 4, 1977 Amsterdam World Championships first place, women's 8, 1978 New Zealand World Championships second place, women's 8. My rowing journey was a bit rocky, and when I started, nobody said I would be an Olympic champion. I had no idea what the sport of rowing was when a recruiting coach invited me to come to the boathouse in 1970. But what I had physically and mentally was very helpful during my journey. I was tall, strong, and energetic, and I had the willpower and ambition. Up to this point, though, I participated in all different kinds of sports. My first five years were not very successful and I trained because I had fun. At this time I didn't dream of being on the national team because it just seemed too far away. My road seemed to split and I had to make a big decision in December 1975. Our club focused on preparing boats to qualify for the national team. I was so far behind that my coach wanted me to quit. Luckily, the sweep rowers, using one oar, were looking for a strong woman to row in the furrow with the coxswain. I was 18 years old and had to decide to give it another try or just go on to university and study to become a civil engineer. I don't take it well when somebody tells me, you cannot do this. My ambition really grabbed me and I was thinking, I'll show you. I was working very hard on my technique to fit in with that crew. We qualified as a four for the Olympic team in May 1976. I'm thankful to that coach today because his decision forced me to think about what I really wanted to do, was I willing to use my capacities and work harder and harder to become a world-class rower or was what I had accomplished up to that point enough for me. Both ways are fine, I just needed to decide which way to go and do it with 100% commitment. My women's eight carrier went to the 1980 Olympics with a lot of lessons to learn. Having seen our race in Moscow not long ago, I remember every part of it very clearly. Our coach's strategy focused on the Soviets as our toughest competition. We knew their last 250 meters, out of the 1,000-meter race, would be their slowest. Our goal was to stay close to them and not let them get more than half a boat length ahead of us at 250 meters to the finish line. The reality looked surprisingly a bit different to us. Our coxswain shouted at us that the Soviets were more than a boat length ahead with only 250 meters to go. I remember thinking that this situation cannot be true, we have to do something very quickly. It seemed like everybody in the boat had the same thought, and the boat took off. We had enough room to catch the Soviets with our last two strokes. All eight of us adjusted to the new situation, listened to our coxswain, and worked even harder as a team to reach our goal. There was a very fine line between being overtaken by negative thoughts, i.e., giving up and losing, and positive thinking, i.e., telling ourselves to go for it and hopefully win. The whole team showed a great spirit, and I'm very grateful to them. Now as a coach, I'm teaching my athletes that it is okay to have a weak moment in practice or in a race. We are all human. The important thing is not to give up, to know it can happen and to trust that you can pick it up again and be even stronger than before. That moment has to be practiced again and again. I believe mental strength in a race can be the decision maker between winning and losing at any level.
Canadian Adam Creek, Olympic gold medalist in rowing career highlights. 2008 Beijing Olympics gold medalist, men's 8. 2007 Munich World Championships gold medalist, men's 8. 2003 Milan World Championships gold medalist, men's 8. 2002 Seville World Championships gold medalist, men's 8. Two-time Olympian. 2004 2008 2010 Canadian Athlete Leader of the Year 2005 Stanford University Athlete of the Year The best advice I ever received was a question from Mike Spracklin, my Olympic coach, Do you want to win, Adam? Do you? It was not just the question, but the timing of the question. He would ask this question when my actions did not align with my goals. I would hear this when I was late for practice, not recovering properly, performing poorly, or being lazy. We need mentors in our life who can be honest and challenge us with powerful questions. These questions drill into our core and uncover the deeper motivation we need for world-class success. When statements questioning our motivation are asked at the right time, we access a higher spiritual and psychological drive. I believe that the conscious presence in each moment is the golden key to effective practice. Practice is not about going through the motions with our body while our mind and spirit reside elsewhere. Rather, practice is about focused effort with our entire being. This ingrains habit and skill into our unconscious self. The goal of being in the now during practice is to create an unconscious competence within our mind, body, and spirit. A great tool I use for bringing back presence is to imagine a teacher, a coach, or a monk standing over my shoulder. When I start thinking about or connecting with anything other than the task at hand, my guide shouts at me, be here now. Then I get back to the task at hand with my full being. The obvious goal of athletic competition is to win. However, I find that focusing too hard on attaining the win weakens our ability to perform. It is comparable to finding the perfect man or woman, or filling your bank account with cash. If you only focus on the result, you stay single and poor. Instead, we must focus on the higher goal, uncovering our authentic, best self. Competition exposes the core of our emotional, spiritual, and psychological being. Rivals act as an extreme, external motivation that helps us go deeper to find our best and worst qualities. In competition and challenge, we find our inner truth. How hard are you willing to work on competition day? How skilled are you? How well did you prepare for the day? What stops you from displaying your best self? What does it feel like when your best self shows up? Be mindful of your reactions during, before, and after competition, but do not judge them. Observe your behaviors and take note. Noting your reactions to outside inputs will give you the important questions needed for improvement. Then ask your coach, sports psychologist, or spiritual mentor. Exploring these questions will give you more strength for practice, your next competition, and life after sport. If you search for your authentic, best self during competition, you will find it. Victory often comes along for the ride as a pleasurable side effect. Initially, I expected the Olympics to be bigger than life and my nerves to be supersize. Instead, the games were surprisingly close to normal. They felt like just other races. Initially, my familiarity and comfort felt weird, then it scared me. To cope, I needed to remove judgment of my reaction and trust that my body has a wisdom that is greater than the intelligence of my analytical brain. 
a ritual that I have developed throughout my competitive career helped me keep my sanity the day of my Olympic race. This is a ritual that helps me get to the right level of nerves. Having no nerves is bad. You need nerves to perform at your best, but when nerves fuel negative thoughts and fear, nerves are also bad. The day of any big race, competition, or test I continually tell myself, today is a very special day, a day like any other day, but a little more special. Today is race day. Race days, and specifically my Olympic race day, were just that, special. By labeling our competition days as special we can take unexpected psychological reactions in stride. The unexpected reaction is expected on special days. There are many arrows in the quiver of an effective team. However, there is one arrow that is always missing from teams that fail, Bayern. All team members must fully commit their spirits to the goals of the team. Time after time, I've seen overconfidence and personal pride destroy the potential of a team. Your ideas are valuable only if they are good enough to be adopted by your coach and teammates. If your opinions are rejected, let them go. A mantra all teams should adopt is if you wanna win, you gotta buy in. This is an active choice and it can be difficult. Buying in makes you vulnerable, and it requires that you diminish your ego. You lose some control. You need to let go of ideas from previous teams and outsiders. The athlete must say to him or herself, I choose to commit 100% to the philosophy, goals, and outcome of my team. I commit to my role on this team. This means listening to and trusting your coach as well as your teammates. You must distance yourself from the opinions of people outside your team. The media, parents, friends, and armchair quarterbacks all have opinions that can disrupt your buy-in. If your team has strong buy-in, your quiver will have a sharp and true arrow to shoot. American Anahi, Olympic gold medalist in Taekwondo career highlights, 1988 Seoul Olympics gold medalist, women's lightweight division, 1988 United States national championships silver medalist, 1987 Barcelona world championships fifth place, 1987 United States national championships silver medalist, 1986 Berkeley World University Games bronze medalist. The difference between a great athlete and a gold medalist is all in the frame of mind. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. I know this for a fact. As an Olympic gold medalist in the full contact fighting sport of Taekwondo, I have found this to be true time and time again. Yet considering that I was abandoned and abused since the age of three, raised in an orphanage, and lived on the streets at age 15, how did I learn this? Especially since by the time I was a young adult, I had learned to run from any chance, challenge, or dream because I had very little self-esteem or self-confidence. In fact, I was my own worst enemy of success. So then, how did I do it? How did I make this 180-degree turnaround? One step at a time. First came the desire, the dream. Next came the determination. Then I learned the importance of focus, perseverance, and preparation. And finally, all of these things taught me to believe in myself. Nothing will ever change without movement. Even if it is the wrong step to take, a single action can open doors that you would not believe. It can give you insight that you never would have thought you had. Never be afraid to take a chance and take one small step. Do not focus on the whole end result of what you want. Focus only on each tiny step you take forward, and each step will lead you to another step.
Imagine crossing a river that is shallow but very fast and dangerous. If you look at the far shore, seeing the power of the water, the risk, you may turn right on around. However, look around the bank and find a single stepping stone. Put that first stone in the water close to the shore. Then, using that first stone, place another stone, and so on. Before you know it, you will reach the other side just by keeping your focus on each little thing you need to do right then. You have no room for your fears to derail you. We often think our goal is insurmountable, when in fact it is only one step away. There is only one truth about perseverance and that is this, perseverance happens when failure is not an option. Never give up, no matter how hard your task. And if you hit a roadblock you cannot seem to overcome, figure out a way around it. Me. I was badly injured going into the Olympic Games. My back injury could not be helped, and I could not train. If I could not train during those final weeks, I stood no chance of winning. Well, I did train, in my mind. I used visualization to practice the movements, the timing, everything. By the time my competition came around, my back was rested enough to allow me to compete, and my mind made up for what I lacked physically. Preparation is the shell that holds the egg together. Without preparation you just have one sticky gooey mess. Entering the Olympic Stadium on competition day, I felt good. Warming up, I felt ready. My mind was convinced that this was my day. Only, something happened right before I entered the arena that blew my psyche. All of a sudden, my old fears rushed into my mind and I lost my self-confidence. Yet I had sacrificed so much to be here. I knew I had the speed, the strength, and the training. I knew that I had done everything possible to be prepared for this exact moment. That's when it hit me, hey, I am ready. I am good enough. And I shoved those doubts aside and took that final step into the competition ring. Olympic gold. Yet, if I had known that I had not been fully prepared, I know I would have crumbled. For the first 25 years of my life, I ran from any chance, challenge or dream, and I felt like a failure. Now, after the Olympics, more than 17 years as a top stunt woman, and as a top motivational speaker, I have learned that even when I lose, I win. For nothing can ever take away that feeling deep inside of pride and satisfaction for having the courage to do what I wanted to do regardless of fear, obstacles, or setbacks. Great things are possible, with just one step at a time. American Nick High Song Olympic gold medalist in pole vault career high points, 2000 Sydney Olympics gold medalist, ending a 32-year Olympic gold medal drought for the United States in the pole vault, 2001 Edmonton World Championships bronze medalist, 1994 NCAA champion for Arizona State University, two-time Pac-10 champion, 1993, 1994, for Arizona State University, 1990 Arizona State High School champion. I've had to deal with quite a few injuries over my career. I have learned that many of my injuries gave me good opportunities to focus. Making rehab your new sport is a great way to think. Furthermore, I think injuries give you definitive evidence of a weakness you have and force you to focus on that weakness. Many ankle and knee injuries occur because of poor stability, and treating these injuries should make you address that weakness, perhaps making you stronger in the end. In 1998, I had an ankle surgery that put me in a cast for 8 weeks during my season. 
I used that time not only to excel at my rehab but also to work on the swinging part of my pole vault. I practiced on a high bar daily. During my first competition after the injury, I jumped 18-8 inches easily, and over the next eight years the constancy level of my vaulting improved by nearly a foot. I went from averaging 18 in a competition to averaging 18-8 inches to 18-10 inches. I also won an Olympic gold medal and a World Championships bronze medal. Many of my injuries were blessings in disguise, this one certainly was. I tell my athletes to think of things this way, working to improve at your sport or to reach a goal is like climbing a mountain. Mountains have gradual inclines, steep inclines, and cliffs, and these paths don't always lead to the summit. Sometimes the path heads down or drops before it starts rising again. These declines in the mountain's path are akin to injuries, illness, or other setbacks in training. As long as we as athletes keep following and moving forward on the path, we are doing what is necessary to be the best we can be. It is easy when things are going uphill because you can see yourself getting closer to the summit, but you have to stay focused on the goal when the path heads down. Simply worrying and feeling sorry for yourself won't move you forward on the path. Don't just focus on the fact that you went downhill. Yes, you should be concerned that you went downhill, as concern indicates that you acknowledge that the path isn't quite what you wanted or hoped for, but you should also be inspired by that concern and address the problem with a new goal of moving forward on the path. If you are sick and can't practice, you can choose to get depressed because of your problem, which would most likely prolong your recovery period, or you can do what it takes to get better faster rest, drink fluids, see a doctor, and eat right. By excelling at rehab, you will move forward on the path. American film Ahare, Olympic gold medalist in alpine skiing career highlights 1984 Sarajevo Olympics gold medalist, slalom 1980 Lake Placid Olympics silver medalist, slalom 1980 Lake Placid World Championships gold medalist, combined. As 10-year-olds, my twin brother, Steve, and I watched Jean-Claude Killy of France win three gold medals in the 1968 Olympic Winter Games in Grenoble, France. Everyone made a huge deal of this feat, and it was then that the two of us began dreaming of representing our country in the 1976 Olympic Games in Innsbruck, Austria. Five years later, in the spring of 1973, I was named to the U.S. ski team and everything seemed to be on track to make my dream a reality. But the best laid plans don't always go smoothly. The following November, days before I was to go to Europe for my first international competition, I was caught in an avalanche and broke my right leg. Missing the 1974 ski season would make my dream difficult, but my focus never wavered from making the 1976 Olympic team. Unfortunately, the good Lord had other plans. Maybe he felt I wasn't mentally strong enough yet and needed more time to gain mental strength, as I refractured my leg nine months later and missed most of the 1975 season as well. I would only have the months of December and January 1976 to compete in international competitions to qualify for the Games in February. With great determination and focus, my results were good enough to earn a spot on the team, and I went on to finish fifth in the giant slalom. That result set the wheels in motion for a new goal, 1980 Lake Placid, New York. 
with the same determination and focus for the next three seasons, I was very successful and won races and became a true contender each and every time I left the starting gate. But once again the best laid plans were interrupted when I fractured my left ankle in March 1979, just 11 months prior to the Games. This injury required a 41 halves hour surgery to put 7 screws and a 2-inch steel plate in my ankle to hold everything in place. I had been down this road before, so I never gave up on my goal of competing in the games. Although I was physically not fully recovered, mental strength enabled me to compete and win a silver medal in slalom. The questions then were do I plan another four-year journey? And will I be healthy or competitive? The answer to both was why not? In 1984, in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, I would have my last chance for Olympic gold. At this time in my career, I knew all too well just how difficult medals were to win, let alone a gold medal. Everything must be in place, health, physical strength, and most important, mental strength and focus. This was the first Olympics I competed in without having to deal with an injury beforehand. Two solids runs, one mistake free, would be enough for victory. I look back on my career with fond memories of the competitions, the wins and losses, but most important, the journey. It is a journey that teaches you all of life's lessons through sports. Dream, and dream big. Australian Natalie Cook, Olympic gold medalist in beach volleyball career highlights. 2000 Sydney Olympics gold medalist. 1996 Atlanta Olympics bronze medalist. 2003 Rio de Janeiro World Championships bronze medalist. Five-time Olympian. 1996, 2000, 2004, 2008. 2012. From an early age, I was encouraged by my grandfather to dream big, to say, that's what I want, and then go about getting it. That is what I did at age 8. I said I want to win an Olympic gold medal. I didn't know how or in which sport, but I was inspired by a fellow Aussie who won a 1982 Commonwealth Games gold medal. Once you've set a that seems impossible goal, don't just put it in an envelope or on your dream chart where no one else can see it because you're afraid that if you don't make it you'll be seen as a failure. My philosophy is once you have decided what it is you want, then tell as many people as you can with conviction. I told people two years before the Games that I was a Sydney 2000 Olympic gold medalist. Once you tell people with that much conviction, not only do you now have to walk, talk, and act like a gold medalist, all the time, but people can then start to support you in all sorts of ways you didn't even think possible. Of course, there will be naysayers who say you can't do that, and they may even laugh at you. You just need to ignore them, move on, and maybe even decide not to hang around those people again. You have to cut some people loose whether they're friends, family, or co-workers if they're not supportive. Otherwise, it will be extra weight to carry on the journey. In the beginning, I was afraid to tell people I was going to win gold, and I had some of my fellow athletes telling me I was an idiot and asking why I was saying that and telling me it was embarrassing. I just surrendered, and every day it got stronger in me and my whole life began to become engulfed in gold. I had a gold toaster, gold sunglasses, gold watch, gold car, palm olive gold soap, gold sheets, gold boxer shorts, everything was gold. Every time I saw something gold, it acted like a magnet, drawing me close toward it. It was sending a very powerful message to my subconscious mind, 
there was no option for me other than gold. People often asked me what if I had come in second, and I comment by saying I would have painted the silver medal gold. See, it is not about the medal. It is about living a gold medal life. The final test is during that one day at the largest sporting event on earth, and the medal is a symbol rewarding you for your efforts. But I was rewarded every day along the path. The whole journey was golden. What are you going to start doing today to make your life golden? All of this is easy when things are going great, but it's when life isn't going so great, when you're at the bottom of the pile, that you need to know your strategy to get yourself back on top. Often it's about support, you need to surround yourself with a team of people and you need to ask for help. There's this belief out there that it's weak to ask for help, but it's not. We call it teaming, when you team up with someone, it takes the pressure off and gives you someone to support and be supported by. We can all find someone to hold hands with through life, whether it's our partners, co-workers, or an organization teaming up with other organizations. This way, the world would be much better off. Canadian Glenroy Gilbert, Olympic gold medalist in track and field career highlights. 1996 Atlanta Olympics gold medalist, 4 by 100 meter relay. 1997 Athens World Championships gold medalist, 4 by 100 meter relay. 1995 Pan American Games gold medalist, 100 meters. 1995 Yurt World Championships gold medalist. 4 by 100 meter relay 1993 Stuttgart World Championships bronze medalist 4 by 100 meter relay participant in 8 Olympic Games 5 as an athlete 1988 1992 1994 1996 2000 and 3 as a coach 2004 Olympic Hall of Fame inductee 2008 Canadian Sports Hall of Fame inductee I see sports as a metaphor for life. The lessons I've learned as an athlete have translated into my everyday experiences, and I believe they've made me a better, more selfless person. I had to learn discipline and perseverance, but I also learned how to be a great teammate and how to appreciate the steps along the way, rather than focusing only on the end goal. Those lessons have been invaluable to me, as an athlete and as a human being. What first drew me to sports was the competitiveness. I loved the idea of testing myself against another person. But once I got serious about track and field, it didn't take me long to realize there are always people who are more talented than you, and if you try to compete against them, you'll be disappointed. So I started setting goals I could personally attain, or try to attain, rather than concentrating on who I was trying to beat. It was almost like an evolution from competing against folks to understanding that I had to start to see what I was capable of based on my own talents. That's not to say that talent is the most important thing. If I were to use percentages to examine what it took for me to succeed, I would say it's probably 70% hard work and 30% talent. I never really saw myself as overly talented, I just saw myself as someone who didn't know when to stop. I put it all out there every single time. I would definitely say it was more hard work than talent, in my case. I don't think there's any real recipe for success. It involves all the things that most people think about when they consider what it takes for an athlete to reach the podium, hard work, dedication, and perseverance. It's all of that. But I think the number one factor is luck. I took a lot of chances throughout my career. 
when I competed in bobsled in the 1994 Lillehammer Winter Olympic Games, anything could have happened on the hill. We crashed a bunch of times. I took training for track and field seriously, but I didn't mind taking chances along the way, and I was lucky they worked out for me. The primary reason I started bobsledding was that I was exhausted from the narrow focus of track and field. I was getting frustrated and stale in the sport, and I wasn't seeing the gains that I thought I should. So I decided to bobsled because I thought if I spent a winter pushing a bobsled, I'd essentially be making myself stronger and fitter for the acceleration phase of the 100-meter sprint, the first 40 to 50 meters. As it turned out, that's exactly what happened. The very next summer I ran my personal best in the 100 meters, and it all came off the heels of bobsledding. I'd taken a risk, and many people thought I wouldn't be able to come back to form in track after spending a season bobsledding. But breaking up the monotony of track and field helped me, physically and mentally. When I returned to sprinting, I felt a renewed energy and focus, and I think that was a big factor in why I was able to sustain such a long career. I continued to try different things now and then, so I'd always have a sharp focus when I returned to track. For example, I accepted an invitation to try out for the San Francisco 49ers in the spring of 1996, although that was cut short when I split my hand open while receiving a pass. Regardless of the outcome, finding ways to stay hungry and focused was extremely beneficial for my athletic career. I draw on that lesson now, as a coach by encouraging my athletes to take the time to recover, not just physically but also mentally. That can be hard when you're dealing with young athletes who want to push hard all the time. But it's important that they see the big picture when they consider their athletic goals. Even when your event is the 100 meters, your career is always going to be a marathon, not a sprint. You have to be able to enjoy the process. I don't deny that winning gold at the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympic Games was a highlight of my career. But I see that run as a coming-of-age moment, for me as an individual and for the entire relay team. Our journey culminated in the Olympic gold medal, but it began in 1992 and involved a prolonged transformation that took place over a period of about four years. We had a lot of great runs and a lot of disappointments along the way. But we persevered through it all. And that's what led us to winning gold in Atlanta. Yes, we won at the Olympics, and that's what every athlete strives for. But it wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't gone through everything that came before. That's one of the biggest lessons I've taken from my career, it's not just about one moment, it's about a long series of moments that add up to something much bigger than any individual victory. In this chapter, We've learned from several athletes about their mental approach to achieving greatness. These champions have much they can teach us about how to perform at a champion's level, in sports and elsewhere in our lives, with the same intensity as an Olympic athlete. Take some time right now to think about each of these gold reflections. How is what these gold medalists went through similar to what you're going through now? What can you learn from the decisions these champions made? Where are you on your journey from good to gold medal? Are you going to emulate Duncan Armstrong by keeping your eyes on the prize? Will you stay positive and persistent while recovering from injuries until you get your game back like Nick Hysong and Phil Mahare? When you are going through tough times, are you going to stay tough-minded like Anahi? All of us can learn to think, feel, and act like a champion, 
So remember to incorporate a few lessons from these Olympic gold medalists into your own game.